Welcome to Bible study. It's good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Uh, We're going to take a few moments and pray, ask God's blessing on our time, and then get to the Bible study, see what God will say to us tonight. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you, God, for your presence here. We thank you that you speak. We ask you that you would give us wide open ears to hear what your Holy Spirit's saying tonight. I pray that you would speak that uh, we would be able to receive whatever revelation, whatever understanding, uh, whatever teaching, whatever it is that you want to give to us tonight, I pray that we'd be open to receive it. And so we just ask that uh, we would be uh, just ready and, and willing and, and at a place where, God, you speak and we know and we hear. So I pray that you would challenge us tonight. I pray that we would uh, receive new understanding tonight. I pray that there would be change that would come forth tonight. I ask you that this just be a time where it's a time of your ministry and our response. And so we just ask you to have your way. We thank you. Uh, we give you praise. And we ask you to open your word to us. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can grab one off the table or uh, one on your phone or whatever. But open up to James, James chapter 3. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And I'm going to need a volunteer to read verse 14. All right, thank you. It's a simple verse, and there's uh, two things that I really want to look at tonight, and it's two different perspectives, so I hope I don't lose you with this, because there's a couple different perspectives that I think this speaks to. Uh, one is me, like what's going on in me, I, the, the whole idea of boasting, the whole idea of why uh, people boast, why they... Uh, talk about themselves, boast about themselves, whatever it is, lie about themselves. And I think this verse gives us insight as to, as an individual, why that happens. But I also think this verse speaks to uh, something in our society. 
And by society, I mean our worldwide society, humans. It speaks to our condition as humans. And, uh, and it speaks to why we, we see this behavior around us. Uh, one of the things I've noticed over, I don't know, probably the past 15 years or so, is that people unashamedly will talk about themselves uh, and boast and lie about themselves in public. And I don't ever remember seeing people do that as frequently as I do now. Maybe I didn't notice it. Maybe they've been doing it the whole time. I don't know. But from my perspective, I just don't remember seeing that. I don't remember experiencing that as much as I do now. Uh, a lot of times, uh, and I think about in the sports arena, with, a, with noted exceptions, noted exceptions. But in the sports arena, you think about, like in, the, in times past, people would say, hey, uh, you had a great game. And almost always an, a professional athlete or even a college athlete would deflect some of that and give their teammates a little bit of praise, talk about how, you know, it's, it's the passing, it's the defense, it's the offensive line, it's whatever the sport happens to be. And they would share some of that with the people and, and recognize the fact that they weren't able to do that by themselves, especially in a team sport. And, and it just seemed like over time that that just was eroded. And you still hear people do that every now and then now, but it's just not to the point that it used to be. And so now it's like, hey, you had a great game. Yeah, I did. I mean, seriously, you hear people like talk like that. And you have to wonder, it's like, well, what produces that? Like, Why? Why, why do we feel, or why does a person feel the need to have to boast, to have to tell everybody about how great they are, to tell everybody about how, how uh, talented they are, to tell everybody about how smart they are, whatever the situation is, why do people feel the need to do that? And, and so I'm going to look at it from those two different perspectives. There's the kind of societal thing, because there's certain things that point to certain truths. And this idea about boasting and this idea of, of people in front of cameras and in, in front of reporters or whoever that are going to just broadcast this to everybody, it, there are certain things associated with that, that that most people would never connect, but the Bible does. The Bible connects those things to it. And so there's certain things that we can see going on uh, in general, kind of in a macro understanding of what's happening around us, that maybe gives us some insight, maybe gives us some wisdom, because there are certain things connected that the Bible connects that our society doesn't and most of us don't either. And so we can learn from that. But then on a personal level, kind of that micro level of our lives, there's a, this idea is like, well, what tempts us to do that? What What runs through us that would cause us to be a, a, a people that would want to bring that kind of, I don't know, uh, attention to ourselves or, or to somehow point to something about ourselves that, if it were true, would be completely obvious, All right? You know, in other words, it's like uh, if, if you're really smart, people are going to know that. If you're really talented, people are going to know that. It becomes self-evident. And, and so, really, there's no need to boast about it because it is self-evident. Most things that we would ever want to boast about in our lives are fairly self-evident to the people that are around us. Why do we feel the need to do that? Why do we feel the need to 
defend ourselves in those ways. And so on a micro level, really digging into that a little bit and seeing what the Bible has to say about what's going on inside of me, what's going on inside of us. And so I hope to approach both these things uh, through the teaching tonight. And if you can stay with me as I switch back and forth between one and the other, I think there might be some good insight and there might be some good wisdom for us tonight to, to take away from this time. So in James 3.14, he, he talks about a couple different things. And, uh, and he's speaking to a people, and this is early on. Uh, the book of James is kind of early on. Uh, most people believe this is James, who's Jesus' brother. And he's the head of the council in Jerusalem. And so he's the guy that's kind of running things in Jerusalem. And because he's kind of running things in Jerusalem, they're kind of running things in the church in general. Because, I mean, and we know that because Paul, when they had questions about what should they do with Gentile believers, they went to the council in Jerusalem. And so it was hashing it out with them that they came to some kind of decision about what they were supposed to do with the Gentile believers. What do we require of them? Because there was whole sections of the church that were saying, all right, well, if somebody becomes or wants to become a Christian and they're a Gentile, well, they got to become Jewish first. And then once they're Jewish, they can become a Christian. And so they wanted to get circumcised. And they wanted to go through the process of becoming a proselyte and all those things before they could become a Christian. And Paul's argument was, yeah, that's way too burdensome. Like, in other words, we're, we're, we're preaching the gospel to these Gentiles and they want to know Jesus, but you're going to require them to become Jewish first before they can become Christian. In other words, you're putting on them a burden that you can't even carry yourself. That's his argument. And that was his whole argument to the church at that time was you cannot, and most of the leadership of the church was Jewish Christians. And so you cannot put on people a burden that you can't carry yourself. And that was his argument. And so that argument made sense to them. They're like, all right, so we agree with you. We're not going to make them become Jewish. We're not going to have these grown men that want to come know Jesus, get circumcised in order to come to Jesus. You think we've got it hard now, you know, seeing people come to know Jesus? Could you imagine if one of the requirements to come to know Jesus was that you had to be circumcised? How many guys are going to do that? See, there's going to be people waiting in line, you know, to get circumcised. They can know. No. And so Paul, he used to say, it's like, this is ridiculous. This is not something that you can bear. How can you make other people do that? And there's a general principle in that. There is a general principle, and this is a leadership principle, in that what he was saying applies to a lot of different things. But in this specific thing, he's talking about the Gentiles and the church, but you start applying that to anything in leadership. It's like, can you require people to do stuff that you won't do yourself? And my answer to that is not effectively. It's not been my experience that you can effectively do that over a long period of time. You might be able to get away with that for a little while. You might be able to get away with that for some time. But if you're unwilling to do the stuff that you're requiring other people to do, you're not going to get away with that for a long time. You're not going to be able to sustain that kind of service over time. People aren't going to listen after a while. So Paul's argument to the church, including James, was we can't do this. It's not, going to, it's not sustainable. 
And the church agreed. The council agreed. Not all of them, but enough of them agreed. And they said, okay, well, this is what we're going to require. And you can read the requirements they had. You can abstain from uh, meat, sacrifice to idols, or whatever it was, or something that's been strangled, or in, in, uh, sexual immorality, and whatever it was. Okay, there were three things, like three requirements they had for them. And if they can do those things, then they're good. That was, that was the decision of the council. But the important part of that was is that it was to solve the judgment issue. And the judgment issue were those Christians that were part of the church that had been Jewish that were judging the Gentile Christians that were now part of the church. And they were stirring up trouble, they were stirring up problems, and they were making trouble for the new believers. And so James, part of what James is writing to here as the head of the Council of Jerusalem, as Jesus' brother, he's somebody that had a little bit of authority within the church. One of the things he's addressing in this it are those people that are just stirring up trouble, that are just being argumentative. And he's just letting them know that's inappropriate. It is inappropriate to make factions in the church. It's inappropriate to stir up trouble within the church. It's inappropriate to start arguments within the church. It's inappropriate to develop camps of, well, I believe this, well, I believe this, and that's the way it's going to be, and get into arguments about dumb things. And so he's making his point in this that it's just stupid to do that. And he brings up these behaviors that you see here and what he's talking about. And it's kind of interesting because not everything, and he, he uses the word in here, literally uses the word, and I know it's not in your translation, but part of the, the word and part of the wording of this is that literally translated, he uses the word zeal in this. And we think of zeal, do you generally have a positive view of zeal or a negative view of zeal? Positive, positive right? Well, he's using it in the negative way. He's letting people know that you have a zeal, but this zeal is in a negative fashion because it's causing splits and it's causing problems and it's causing arguments. And so I guess it's kind of important for us to understand that you may be zealous for something, but it may not be something that's going to build the church. It's kind of important to know that maybe you have a certain zealous outlook or you want to get something done in a zealous fashion, but it may not be the time, it may not be the place, and it may not be conducive to the growing of the kingdom of God. Those two things can exist. And it's important for us as Christians to understand that, that just because we have zeal for something does not mean that's something that God's doing right now. Just because you have zeal for something doesn't mean that's something that's going to grow the church. Just because you have zeal for something doesn't mean that's something that's going to build people up, even. And, it, and, it's, and I'm not saying it's not valid. I'm not saying it's not something that is, is right, wrong, or indifferent. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. He had a certain zeal for persecuting the church before he became a Christian. So when he was Saul, the Pharisee, he had a zeal for persecuting the church. And he was very zealous. He was signing on to Christians being killed. He was, he was chasing them. 
uh, from place to place, into foreign countries even, to drag them back to Jerusalem. He was a part of taking Christians into the synagogues and beating them and torturing them until they cursed the name of Jesus. He was part of it. He was very zealous of all those things. Was that zealous? Was that a building of the church? No, it was a destruction of the church. Did he believe that he was absolutely and positively right? Absolutely he did. Did he believe that he had every right to do the things that he was doing? Absolutely he did. Did he have the backing of the chief, chief priests and, and the council? Of course he did. He had letters that gave him permission to do all of those things I just said and more. He was very zealous for that, but it wasn't to the building of the body of Christ. It wasn't to the building of the church. It wasn't to the furtherance of the kingdom of God, even though it was very religious, even though it was very sincere, and it was. It was very real to him. It was very sincere. He meant exactly what he said, and he believed exactly what he did. But it wasn't to the good of what God was doing. To the point that God had to knock him off his horse around noontime on the way to Damascus. And it was that personal confrontation by Jesus directly face-to-face -face with him, and probably the only thing that would have changed him in order to take that zealous approach that he had to persecuting Christians and turning that toward missions and reaching people for Jesus. Because God knew what his personality was. He knew that he was going to take hold of the gospel, and he was going to take that gospel wherever he went. He knew that he was going to be a builder of the church, he knew that he was going to be somebody that was going to be a preacher of the gospel. He knew that he would go into the synagogues and he would convince many. And he knew that he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew all that. But all that zeal and the reality of that had to be turned, had to be made into something that was useful for the kingdom. So don't mistake zeal in and of itself as always being good, especially in you, especially in me. Well, I've got to look at that and say, wow, I feel really strongly about this. Okay, good. But is it going to build the kingdom? I feel like this is something I really, you know, I just really believe this. And I believe you that it's sincere and I believe you that it's something that, that, that maybe that you, you believe with your whole heart, but is it something that is going to build the body of Christ? I don't know. And that becomes a better question than if you're excited about something. Because you can be excited about something, and that thing may not be any good for what God's doing right now. And you might be excited about something right now that God maybe is going to do in 10 years. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But you have to get a feel for what God is doing. You got to get a feel for what God is saying. You got to get a feel for where God is at and where we are in that time frame in order to know it's like, all right, well, am I pursuing this or am I letting this go or setting it aside for a while and being willing to do that for the good of the, the body, for the good of the kingdom. So in this passage, He's confronting these people. 
He's like, you're super zealous about what you believe about what, who, what Gentiles need to do in order to become Christians. It's just not what we've decided. You're super convinced that, that you know that this is what is supposed to happen and, and what these people need to go through in order to become Christians, but that's not what we would decide. That's not where we're at. That's not what's happening. That's not to the building of the body. That's not to the furtherance of the kingdom. And so he recognized that, yeah, you have a zeal. Yeah, you're excited about this. Yeah, you believe in your heart of hearts, deep down inside, in the subconscious of your heart, you believe this. And he's recognizing that. It just happens to be that this is not something that's going to build the kingdom of God right now. And so he's confronting that in these people. And it's kind of interesting because what's in our heart uh, doesn't always, isn't always expressed by words. You know, whatever's in your heart sometimes is expressed in other ways. Because Jesus talked about that. He's like, you know, out of the heart come what? All kinds of stuff. And you think about all the stuff he describes coming out of your heart, most of it bad. Right? That's where it comes from. And so it expresses itself in certain ways, but not always in words. And, and I would say this to you, and I'd say this to you for you first, and then for people around you, and as a word of wisdom to you, that sometimes people will say the right words, but what's really coming out of their heart by their actions and by their attitudes is different than what their words are saying. Because the heart, as it's expressed through your life, may not be expressed in words. Maybe your brain can express something a lot better and more acceptable, but what's really coming out of your heart can be seen in your actions or can be seen in your attitudes. And so as, a, as, a, as someone that you're dealing with people all the time, you got to think about that for a second. What's going to mean more? I mean, words matter. Words have meaning. But people's actions and people's attitudes speak a lot about what's actually in their heart. And being able to discern that, being able to see that, being able to separate word, word, word for this is who I really see here by their actions. This is who I really see here by their attitudes. Being able to do that will give you insight and wisdom in how to actually deal with somebody and actually how to actually handle somebody. Or how God can use you to speak into their lives or how God can use you to bring peace or rest or joy into a situation, how to be a peacemaker in certain situations. Because you're looking at something and you're saying, okay, the words and the, and the actions or the words and the attitudes do not mesh. What's actually going on here? And really looking a little bit deeper and seeing, okay, this is what's really in the heart. Because James here, he's talking to them about what's in their heart. And he's talking about a zeal that's not good because it's a zeal that produces strife. And so no matter what their words were, their actions and their attitudes were producing strife all around him, and he could see it. And so if you have a situation like this, I want you to think about this. If you have a situation like this where you've got people saying the right thing, but their attitudes and their actions are producing strife, then what do you need to address? 
What do you need to address, you, as a leader? You need to address their heart motive, right? And, and so think about yourself now. If you're noticing, you're saying all the right things, but you, can, you know how you feel? You know how you feel? You're feeling a certain bitterness or you're feeling a certain anger over certain things? What does that tell you? It tells you that your words are not powerful enough change what your heart is actually saying all right and sometimes words just aren't that powerful you may be able to say the right things but your heart's going to give you away through your attitudes and through your actions and so you even in your own life i'm talking about other people but i'm also talking about you you got to address the heart motive you got to address what's going on in here you got to address the bitterness that's in here and let God do the work in here that needs to be done. Instead of just saying everything's okay. And just saying, well, that's not what I really think. Or that's not what's really going on. But really to address what's actually happening. What's actually proceeding from your heart. Because that's where the change needs to take place. You can talk all you want. And you can say the right things all you want. But that doesn't produce the change that needs to take place. What produces the change that needs to take place is what your heart needs to change. Whether that's a cleansing, or whether that's a renewing, or whether that's a, a deliverance, or whether that's God just setting you free from something, whatever that would possibly be, that's where the change would have to take place. Because uh, whether or not you say it, a bitterness of heart produces bitterness effects. The Bible talks about it when it talks about don't let the root of bitterness spring up in you whereby many have been defiled. I mean, that verse says it. It says it that that bitterness is in you will defile people around you. Whether or not your words are defiling them, whether or not you're the nicest person on the face of the earth when, when it comes to what you have to say, you might be a real sweet talker, but if you've got bitterness in your heart, there's going to be defilement that's going to go into the lives of the people around you. That's why it has to be taken care of, even for sweet talkers. Because a sweet talker can get by, but they're not going to stop the effect of the root of bitterness out of their life. It's going to have its effect. And so I asked this question when I was reading this passage. Is this, why do people boast about themselves and lie? Why? And he gives two reasons. And, and here's the two reasons. These are the connections that, that we wouldn't normally or necessarily make with this. But I'm thinking on two levels. It's like the first level is, well, why do I boast about myself and lie? All right, well, there's a connection to that. And then there's the other level is like in society, why is it perfectly acceptable for people in our society to stand up, get into the media and just boast about themselves, say how great they are, and even lie about themselves? Why is that okay? When did that become okay? That's okay among leaders of industry. That's okay among political leaders. That's okay among uh, sports and and whatever else you want to look at, intellectuals, anybody. How in the world, how in the world is it okay to boast about how awesome you are and lie? When did that become okay? But it is. I mean, how many times 
are people caught in lies and no one cares. See, it used to be that if you wanted to have a position of leadership and you wanted to rule over people, let's say you wanted to be a politician or you want, I don't care if you're the mayor or the governor or the president. If people, if you were caught in a lie, all right, you were considered not to be trustworthy anymore. Therefore, incapable of making honest decisions for the benefit of the people that you're being elected to represent. Therefore, you are disqualified. That's not the way it is anymore. The way it is now is, if you're caught in a lie, well, everybody lies. <laughs> well, not everybody's running for president. Well, everybody lies. Not everybody wants to be the mayor. All right? And, and, and for some reason, that's become okay. So I'm going to answer that question. I ask that question. Why people boast about themselves and lie? Two things. And he names it in this verse. Bitter jealousy is the first thing. Bitter jealousy. And the second is selfish ambition. So why do I lie? Why do I boast about myself? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I don't need to look any further. Those things are connected. Those things are connected on a micro level, my life. Those things are connected on a macro level in a societal kind of way. That the reason that those things happen, you don't have to look any further. You look down and you begin to trace back. There's selfish ambition involved and there's bitter jealousy involved. Now, how, why would I say that? Well, you find that in every circumstance where you see this. That's where you find it. And so it answers the question. For us, that's important because it answers the question that needs to be answered so that we can see change in our lives. It's important to us because these are the areas that need to be addressed in our life so that we can stop boasting, we can stop lying, and we can just live our lives in humility like God called us to. To stop this. Stop it. To stop this behavior. I don't care how acceptable this is in society. It needs to stop in the church. I don't care how acceptable this is to everybody out there. Every person you meet, they think this is perfectly normal. I don't care about that. It's got to stop in us. Because there is something just, just powerfully wrong with that that will hinder the work of Christ if we allow it to continue. The work of the kingdom will be hindered. The work of Christ will be hindered. The work of discipleship will be hindered. Everything that God has called us to, every great thing that God has ever called us to do will be hindered through boasting and through lying. It's just going to be hindered. And so we got to look into it and look back deeper, however you want to think about it, but look at for, what am I looking for? Jealousy, bitterness, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition. That's what I need to look at. Those are the things I'm looking for in my life in order to end this. In order to end it. Now, if you want to think about this on a societal level, you begin to look at this and say, all right, well, where do we concentrate our prayers? If we're not going to accept this, if we're not going to just accept, oh, this is normal behavior, because it's not. 
If we're not going to accept this, that this is acceptable, it's not acceptable behavior. So if we're not going to accept it, where do we turn our, where do we focus our energy? Where do we focus our prayers? Two things, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Now, to explain these a little better, I could talk about, he, and he uses this word here, he talks about, you know, lies and against the truth. And this whole passage, as I said before, this is talking about factions. This is talking about feuds. This is talking about strife. And it's going against the truth. Now, Pontius Pilate, he, he asked a question of Jesus. And it wasn't really he asked Jesus the question. It was more of a rhetorical question. It could have even been in jest. And he didn't really wait around for the answer. But he asked this question. He says, what is, you remember what he said? What Pilate asked? What is truth? Right. What is truth? I don't know that he wanted to know the answer to that. Because he didn't really wait around for the answer. And he really wasn't that interested in pursuing the answer. Because two reasons. One, he didn't want to hear it. Because he didn't wait around to hear it. Two, he had incarnate truth standing in front of him. And he wouldn't see it. And so it occurs to me that he may have asked that question. But deep down inside... He didn't care. He didn't really want to know. And that's why people keep truth on this subjective level that, oh, well, truth's whatever you make it. Well, that's not true. No test would ever be given if that was the case. There'd be no grade ever given if that was, if you could just make up whatever you think is true, like people seem to think they can. There would be, there would be no way to evaluate anything. There would be no way to, to even understand who understands what facts are, there'd be no facts. Because a fact in and of itself has some element of truth in it, some accepted truth that makes it a fact. So without any kind of truth, if all truth is subjective, then there's nothing. I mean, the world falls apart. Like in other words, why stop at a stop sign? Why go the speed limit? Why drive on the right-hand side of the road in the United States or the left-hand side of the road in other countries like Thailand or wherever? Why do that? If you can just do whatever you want, well, that, that's the law. Well, I don't accept that. I think this is the law. You kind of understand what I'm saying is that we, we try to keep a subjective truth because we really don't want to be confronted with anything. We don't want to have to do something a certain way. And so we fight that through just keeping things ambiguous. Well, there is absolute truth. There is. There are things that are just true. And, and, and to not be willing to accept the fact that some things are just true is to live in a certain type of self-deception. And we used to call that kind of insanity, right? That, oh, I'm just going to make something up. It used to be if you made up a, wor a world and you lived in it, that you were neurotic or psychotic. Now you make up a world and you live in it and you've got you know, protection under the law to live in your world. We used to be able to define, you know, what certain things are, clearly. Can't do that anymore. Can't do that. You're going to hurt somebody's feelings if you define something absolutely because they don't believe that. Well, maybe they're just wrong. Maybe sometimes people are just wrong. 
and it's okay that they're wrong. I'm wrong sometimes. I'd rather know I'm wrong and be corrected so that I can be made right than just continue living in a self-deception. Well, these people, they had gotten a hold of whatever they were going to call truth, whatever that is. Well, yeah, except for they were causing factions, feuds, splits. They were causing all kinds of problems within the church and within the kingdom of God because what they believed was absolutely incorrect. And they were causing problems because of it. Now, if you think about that on a macro level, that makes sense. If you've got a group of people that have any kind of power within any organization and they're going off the wrong premise or they're, they're going after things and they're just absolutely wrong, they're going to sow discord and they're going to sow problems within the organization. But you think about that in your life in a micro sense. If you believe certain things about the world that are untrue or you believe certain things about yourself that are untrue, you are going to sow problems for yourself and you're going to sow bitterness for yourself. You know, I've used these examples before. I mean, if you think you're the greatest athlete on the face of the earth, like you're the greatest ba basketball player on the face of the earth, and you go to open tryouts for a professional basketball team, and they don't want you on their team, well, you can get all bitter as you want against that team for not letting you on. I mean, they're, obviously they're blinded because they don't see you're the greatest basketball player on the face of the earth. And you open yourself up for bitterness. Why? Because you believe a lie. You believe a lie. I'm the nicest person I've ever met. Why doesn't everyone love me? Well, everyone thinks you're a jerk because you're a jerk. No, I'm not. I'm the nicest person ever. I can't believe these people don't love me. Well, they're just stupid. And you get all bitter about it. Do you understand? I'm giving you like really kind of broad stroke examples of this. But when you believe the wrong things about yourself, like lies about yourself, then you set yourself up for bitterness because the real world doesn't line up with your lies. It doesn't line up with what you want to believe. The Bible tells us, um, somebody look at John 7, 17. John 7, 17. There's a passage here I'll share with you. You want to know truth? You know how you know truth? Choose to do the will of God. I'm going to give that one to you. Free. Give you that one free. Choose to do the will of God and you will know truth. Well, I wish I could know what the truth is. Choose to do the will of God and you will know truth. Beyond just that thing that you're deciding to do right then, you're going to know truth about other things too. So Jesus gave us a way to know truth, at least one way, and he gave us another way to know truth. The first way is do the will of God, then you're going to know truth. What's the second way? Know him. Why? He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So he is truth incarnate. So we can do the will of God, we'll know truth. We can know him, go into relationship with him, know him, and then we're going to know truth in that too. So we've got two ways that we can know truth. I'm going to make a statement here, and that's all I've been saying this whole time. There's a difference between people 
pretending to be wise and being wise. Does that make sense to you? There's a difference between people pretending to be wise and being wise. That needs to make sense to you. Now, I know that sounds really obvious, right? Well, start substituting other things in there. That if people pretend to be what? Popular? Are they popular? No. They just pretend to be popular. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you had this whole thing. Like We've got a whole generation of people that pretend to be famous. Right? <laughs> they just pretend to be famous. You know, but that doesn't make them famous. You can pretend to be smart. That doesn't make you smart. You can pretend to, to have a certain amount of knowledge. It doesn't mean you have the knowledge. Pretending doesn't make something real. You can pretend to be somebody you're not. It doesn't make you that person. We used to understand that. Now we don't somehow. Like, of course people understand that. I'm telling you they don't. I'm telling you that we accept the fact if somebody wants to pretend to be something that they're not, we accept the fact that, well, we're just going to let them keep pretending. That must be who they are. And we're expected to acknowledge them and call them by whatever they're pretending to be. You know that, right? Yeah. And I know I'm not supposed to say any of this because I'm supposed to pretend with everybody, but I'm just saying it right now. That if somebody wants to pretend to be wise, then I'm expected to go along with that and say, oh, yeah, you're wise. Because if I don't do that, then I get called names and I'm a bad person for not pretending along with somebody and not agreeing with whatever they're pretending to be. Oh, you're wise. You're right. But if I don't say that, I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. We're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. But if somebody's just pretending to be wise, that doesn't make them wise. Somebody that talks well is not necessarily wise. There's plenty of smooth talkers out there that aren't wise at all. And so going back to who James is talking to here, these people pretending, these people with bitterness in their heart, these people causing factions and causing all kinds of division within the church. Those who live in malice, envy, and contention live in confusion. Those who live in envy, malice, and contention live in confusion. And I will say this too. Boasting, like what's being described here, renders us unfit to be a teacher and a leader in the body of Christ. And so these issues of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy have to be dealt with in us. They must be dealt with. Whatever that means whether that means confession, whether that means repentance, whether that means asking Jesus to cleanse us, whatever that means, these things need to be dealt with in us because it will render us unfit to be a teacher or a leader in the body of Christ. 
The whole idea of selfish ambition is the whole idea of selfish, fierce, unholy zeal toward one another. The idea of rivalry. And rivalry needs to stop. Just needs to stop. Well, in the body of Christ, we can all excel. All of us. We can all move forward together. We can all grow together. We can all become who God wants us to be together. There's no mutual exclusion. If one of us succeeds, that the other has to fail. But we can all succeed together. And so we just have to get rid of that. Paul had his call, and he was doing it. James had his call, he was doing it. Peter had his call, he was doing it. You know, we got to get a hold of that. And just because Paul was succeeding didn't mean Peter couldn't. Or because Paul was doing great planting churches didn't mean James wasn't going to be effective in what God called him to do. They can all be effective. We can all be effective. We have to get rid of that, that spirit that tries to churn up in us to turn us against one another or to turn you against yourself. We got to get rid of it. We got to get rid of it. Because that, that, uh, that malice and that envy and that contention, it causes confusion. Not only in the church, it causes confusion in your life. If you're living in confusion, I mean, those are that's a that's a pretty good sign that you got some of those things running around in you, and they need to be purged. It's a pretty good sign that there may be some things that are off kilter in your life that that need to be dealt with, that need to be confessed, that need to be cleansed, that that need to go, they just need to go. And so. It's time for that spirit, whatever that spirit is, to go. It's time for that contention to go. It's time for the envy to go. It's time for the malice to go. It's time for the boasting to go. It's time for the unholy zeal to go. It's time for the factions and the splits and and the feuding to go. And it's time for us to rise up as God's people. And it's time for you to rise up as God's person, as his man or his woman for this hour and this day and for this time. That's what time it is. But we're not going to be very good at that if we're busy comparing and arguing and trying to best whoever. We're not going to be good at it at all. And so I believe what James is doing here, and I believe what Jesus is doing, is he's just he's bringing a drawing together into our lives. He's bringing a, a drawing together in us as individuals 
toward his will and his purpose and his plan for our lives. Not pretending to be something we're not, not saying we're something we're not, but just going about the business that he's given us to do. Pursuing his will, pursuing his will, and living in the truth. I think that's what time it is. And as each of us will do that, as each of us will pursue his will and live in the truth, I just believe a lot of the arguing and the backbiting and the comparisons and the jealousy or whatever it is will stop so that we can be more effective, more effective for the kingdom. Why am I speaking this word tonight? I'm not sure. I just felt like I was supposed to. I started preparing this, and the whole time I prepared this, I thought I argued about this. Like, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I going to say this? Who's going to follow this? Who cares? I don't know. I assume somebody here does, though. And I assume somebody here is going to be set free tonight. Somebody. Maybe more than one somebody, but to be set free from whatever it is, the bitterness or whatever it is, the jealousy or whatever it is, the envy or whatever it is, all these things, the strife or the malice or the contention or whatever those things are, to be set free, to be set at liberty, just live in a simplicity of truth. And I also believe that God's going to raise up some people that know how to pray. And they're going to pray for this. They're going to pray against the selfish ambition. They're going to pray against the bitter jealousy, the, the evil zeal that leads to the manifestation of the boasting, the manifestation of the lying. And I believe God can raise up some people and begin to pray that way and begin to intercede that way. We can see a change and a shift in our society as humans. Because it shifted once. Because I didn't grow up like this. So there had to be a shift. Because if it was this way in the Bible, and it wasn't that way when I was a kid, something shifted, right? I got, I got two things I can look at there and say, all right, those are two different things. So it can shift. It can. It can shift. That these things, and if I can activate a faith in some of our intercessors to pray these things, we can see a shift. I just believe that. So I just want to pray for you tonight. Um, pray for us as individuals. And if you're an intercessor, consider yourself challenged to get to it. But Heavenly Father, I pray for us as individuals tonight, and I want to pray just a freedom over us and a truth over us. Because God, I, I pray that whatever would be in us that would be bitter, 
whatever root of bitterness that we would carry in us, whatever thing in us that would be defiling, whatever thing in us that would be lies, whatever thing in us that would keep us from really uh, realizing uh, just the fullness of what you have for us, God. Whatever those things are, I pray that they would be cast down in our hearts, they'd be cast down in our minds, they'd be cast down in our lives in Jesus' name. I ask you tonight that we would respond to you in freedom, that we respond to you in liberty. And I ask you, Lord, that these would be times where whatever would be holding us back, jealousy, ambition, selfishness, God, whatever would be holding us back, uh, just bitterness, jealousy, I just ask you, God, that uh, these things would be dealt with in us, and as we need to, I pray we would confess these things. I thank you that you said if we will confess our sin, you are faithful, you are just, you will forgive us, and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, God, I pray that even as things are confessed tonight, there would be a cleansing in Jesus' name and a setting free in Jesus' name. Because, God, we want to leave behind the things that hinder. We want to leave behind the things that are holding us back. We want to leave behind the things that are getting in the way. We want to leave behind the things that don't matter so that we can take up the things that do. And so, God, I ask you that we would leave behind that stuff that don't, doesn't matter, that stuff that factions and feuds and arguments are made of. We just leave it behind in Jesus' name as refuse, as something that just doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. So we could take up the weightier things like, what's your will, God? I want to live in your truth. What does it look like to actually live in truth and to live in a simplicity of heart and a simplicity of life? What does it actually look like to live in humility? Yeah, to know who we are and be confident enough in who we are in you that we don't have to talk about it. We just go about life. So God, I pray a freedom over us. I pray a liberty over us. I pray a setting free in our hearts, our minds, our spirits. And I pray that you would fill us, fill us. God, your will be done. Your will be done in us and through us. And I thank you. I thank you for your truth tonight. Thank you. Pray that you raise up a body of people ready, willing, and able to just live it out. Right here in this neighborhood. Ready to live it out see you glorified, see your name praised, to see lives changed, see hearts changed, to see minds changed, yeah, see disciples made. Give you thanks, and we give you praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Good to see you tonight. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. 
economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah. 